Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, the verses that we looked at last week. Somebody mind reading verse, how about verse 1? Verses 1 and 2, actually. Somebody mind reading that. And the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. And just reviewing kind of what we talked about last week in that study, John Walton, uh, he ends up writing in the commentary on Genesis that he wrote. He says, as he did with Abram, God sometimes asks people to leave one situation so that he can bring them to another, better situation. Sometimes God gives back to us far more than we left behind. The sometimes is important in both of these formulations. Certainly, we must be willing to leave everything behind for Christ. One of Jesus' hardest sayings is that anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He also assures his disciples that no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus does not ask us all to leave that which we love, but when he does, our resolve must remain firm. Different people may be asked to leave different things. The rich young ruler was told that he must sell all that he had and give it to the poor if he was to become a disciple. Discipleship does not ask that of everyone, but to become disciples, we must be willing to leave anything we are asked to leave. That is what we learn of God. And though God promises that no sacrifice will be made in vain, we must not allow ourselves to think of material reward as an incentive for leaving. Instead, we do well to remember the haunting words from Jim Elliott's journal that echo through the ages, quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so Abram, giving everything to follow God, serving as an example for us to be willing to do the same, to give up everything to follow God. And then verses 2 and 3. I know we read verse 2 already, but if somebody would mind reading that verse again, and then verse 3. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And all peoples of the earth shall be blessed through you, or all families of the earth shall be blessed John Walton goes on to say regarding those verses, he says, God has revealed himself through Abram's family. The law was given through them. The prophets were from among their number. Scripture was written by them, and their history became a public record of God's attributes and action. Then to climax it all, his own son came through them and revealed the Father and the kingdom through his life and a plan of salvation for the world through his death. In Abram, all the nations of the earth were blessed as they were shown what God was like and as the means were provided for them to become justified, reconciled to God, and forgiven of their sins. And so that kind of recaps what we studied last week and uh, kind of the thrust of the teaching that we looked at last week. And then this week we're going to be going through verses 4 through 10. 
verses 4 through 10. Let's look at the first one there, verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord, this is Yahweh or Jehovah, as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And so we know from this verse, if Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and he waited there until the death of Terah, his father. Terah died at 205. We have 75 here. 205 minus 75, it looks like then 130 years by the time he was born to Terah. Some people would point to a verse in the last chapter and say, well, wait a minute, that verse says that Terah had three children at the age of 70, but it doesn't quite say that. How do you reconcile that? Well, they don't all get born at the same time. And we looked at that in previous studies. The other phrase that's in that verse, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoke to him. And this, this testifies to Abram's obedience, his faith in God and his obedience. And Paul in Romans 4.21 says that Abram was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. In our lives as well, we should have a faith in God that is fully convinced that what God has promised, he's able to perform, right? God is able to do anything. And so if God asks you to do something and it's not in your capacity or abilities to pull it off, God's going to give you what you need to pull it off, all right? God is able to perform what he's calling you to do. God is able to perform the fulfillment of the promises that he's called you to. Stuart Briscoe ends up saying regarding this passage, there is always a danger of looking at such men, such as Abram here, and divorcing what they did from what God may be asking his children to do today. But all God's children are expected to walk by faith. So in Abram's life, we're not allowed to look at him and go, oh yeah, that guy's special though. That guy is special. Me, I'm, I'm not. I'm not like that. That's a different category of person. No, God expects us to be living in obedience just as Abram was. Abram serving as an example to us. God in his sovereignty chose Abram. For what? He may not even know yet. He ends up getting more and more information as the time goes on. God has a call on your life. And just as God is sovereign in his call on your life, he may not give you all the details or all the information ahead of time. It's your responsibility to follow and obey based on the information you know so far. And he can reveal to you what he wants to reveal to you as time goes on. All right. So we need to be obedient just as Abram was obedient. Regarding this move of Abram then, in verse 4 it says, so Abram departed, right? So he left. He took God at his word and he went. If you look at the uh, map here, you've got kind of an idea of where he went. He ended up starting down. We've got one proposed area for Ur down here. We've got another proposed area for Ur up here. But either way, it's Haran that he's leaving. So Haran is up in this area up here. And he ends up coming around this way to Israel, down to Canaan, all right? So if you were to look at a map from his, his complete journey, if it was the earth that's down here, it would be like this. It would be this arch type of a travel. Or if it's from up here, it's basically you know, this kind of a path going down here. And he enters into Canaan. That's obviously the title of today's lesson, Abram arrives in Canaan. Regarding his move, though, we live in a highly mobile society. It's not uncommon for people to move nowadays for various reasons. What's one reason that you might think of, of somebody moving? For a job, right. There might be a better job prospect somewhere else, so you pick up and you move. What might be another reason? Dave's new house. (laughs) Dave's new house. Lower payments. All right, lower payments. Better environment, maybe. It's got better weather or something. (laughs) And a hot tub, too. All right. What are some other reasons we might move? Divorce. Divorce, right. So you could have a situation. Things have changed in your life. The circumstances are different now, and it's uncomfortable for a person to stay where they're at, so they move. Maybe they're fleeing something from their past. Persecution. Persecution. A lot of times people might move for persecution. What is the reason that Abram moves? Why did Abram move? Obedience. God called him to move, and he obeyed. He moved because of an issue of faith. 
If you take God at his word, in faith you move. You take God at his word, and in faith you move. How many times do we hear people moving nowadays for that reason? Not very often. If we're people of faith, that ought to show. And one of the ways it shows is it affects the way you live and the decisions you make. And sometimes it might be a big decision, and you move. You know, in the eyes of his family that were left behind, I'm sure they thought he was crazy. You're, you're going where? You don't even know where you're going. You're going to a, a general location, but you're not, you're not going to a specific place, and you don't know why. You heard this, God called you? Sometimes in our lives, we're the crazy person to our family. Sometimes in our lives, our family says, they're crazy. They believe what? They believe God? Sometimes we're the crazy person. But just like Abram, follow God. Follow God. Genesis chapter 12, verse 5. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Oftentimes the impression is that it was just three people. It was just Abram, it was Sarai, his wife, and then there was Lot. But here it's clear from this verse that there were more people involved and that there were possessions, great flocks and herds probably. Uh, we don't know how many people. It doesn't give us the details of that. But I've heard and read commentaries that suggest it could have been numbered in the hundreds. We just don't know. All right. So, But it's clear from this verse it wasn't just the three of them. Their travel, this uh, travel that I trace on the map behind me, depending on which ur you use, we're looking at about 500 miles. About 500 miles to travel. That's a long way, especially if you don't have a jet or a U-Haul. Dave moved across town and he hired a company to help him move. All right? These guys couldn't hire a company to move and they weren't just moving across town. So at 500 miles, if you're moving, even if you're moving 20 miles a day, that's going to take you a month to do this move. You're talking very remote. You're talking cut off from your past for all intents and purposes. It's not like you get to go visit your relatives on the weekend. At 500 miles, taking you a month to go visit your relatives, it's got to be a special occasion that you're going to end up going that kind of distance to see your relatives. We don't know the exact route they took, but it's interesting because we get to see some of the places that Abram ended up stopping. Somebody mind reading verse 6 for the first mention of that, of one of those places. Abram passed through the land, the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were then in the, in the land. So the first place they come to is Shechem, and also mentions in conjunction with Shechem this terebinth tree of Moreh. Somebody else have a different translation that mentions something other than terebinth tree? Oak. To the oak tree, right. So oftentimes you're going to see a translation is usually going to either choose a terebinth or an oak to translate that Hebrew word. All right, so basically you've got Shechem, you've got the terebinth tree of Moreh. Shechem actually still exists. It's the modern city of Nablus nowadays. In fact, Nablus in 2013, Denver, Colorado was thinking about making Nablus or declaring Nablus a sister city to Denver, Colorado. And it resulted in this big uh, fight in the city council and they ended up not going along with that. So Nablus still exists. Nablus is in the area that's called the West Bank. All right, anybody heard of the West Bank in the news? All right, if you're going to sign up for a trip to the Holy Land, Nablus will not be on your itinerary. You're not welcome in Nablus. All right, visitors, foreigners, um, Jews, uh, Westerners, you're not welcome to come to Nablus. All right, interesting how they would think about doing a sister city thing. But okay, I get <laughs> that's beside the point. So anyway, Nablus is uh, it's actually located between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Got Mount Ebal just north of it, Mount Gerizim just to the south of that. And the, this is a pass. And Shechem ends up being a prominent place right there in the pass. All right, it's been inhabited for millennia. 
All right, so it's been a long time. So here you have the mention of Shechem. You have the mention of the terebinth tree or the oak tree of Moray, and uh, knowing that it's between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. How about the next verse here? Actually, um, I should read you a few more details. The site of Shechem has been identified with Tel Balata, just east of modern Nablus, and about 35 miles north of Jerusalem, if you're wondering where to find it on a map. Okay. Regarding Terebinth tree, I should mention, uh, look up Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Somebody might reading that. And now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan toward the setting sun and the land of the Canaanites? who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal, beside the terebinth trees of Moray. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. So here we have a biblical correspondent uh, or a biblical attachment attaching the terebinth trees of Moray with the Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim location. And then that phrase in this verse that has to do with the Canaanites, it says there that the Canaanites were in the land. The Canaanites, quoting Stuart Briscoe here, the Canaanites were to become a thorn in the side of God's people for many years to come. And their religious practices would be one of the great temptations to which God's people would succumb all too often. All right, so they end up becoming a significant people group that uh, you find out about more as the story unfolds. Genesis 12, 7. Somebody mind reading that? Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am going to give this land to your offspring. And Abraham builds an altar there to commemorate the Lord's visit. Excellent. Thank you, Luke. What is different about the Lord and Abraham here in this verse compared to uh, verse 1? See anything different? Maybe this is splitting hairs here. But in this verse, the Lord appeared. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the other verse, all we have is the Lord said. Mm -hmm. It could be that in verse 1, there wasn't an appearance. It could have been that maybe God just spoke to Abram, and now he's revealing more of himself to Abram. As Abraham exercises obedience, God reveals more of himself to Abram. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Do you suppose God might use a similar pattern in our lives? Mm -hmm. I would suppose so. I would suppose that when we show ourselves to be willing and obedient to what God has called us to, that he reveals more of himself to us, just as we see in this pattern here. To your descendants, I will give this land. To your descendants, I will give this land. This is kind of interesting because for God to make this promise, this is a promise that's going to be fulfilled later, much later, much, much later, not even in Abram's lifetime. Abram has to believe God for a promise to be fulfilled after he dies. He's got to make choices in his life that show that he's got the faith to believe God for something he'll never see in his lifetime. That's not too different from what God asks of us. Anybody in here, raise your hand if you're looking forward to being with God in heaven. Right? Isn't that a promise we're looking forward to that is beyond this lifetime? It's a promise that won't be fulfilled right now. It's a promise that's fulfilled in the future after we die. And to the extent that we believe God in that, it will affect the way we live and the choices we make. Such that we end up making choices in this lifetime toward a promise that we'll never see fulfilled until after we die. Just like Abram. He was given a promise to be fulfilled after his lifetime. Interestingly, also in this place, it says there... Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. The word give, I want to emphasize the word give here. Because there was a mention of land over in verse 1. Do you see what it says though over there in verse 1 at the very end of that verse? What does it say in regard to the land? Does it say he'll give it to him? Show. 
The original call of Abram was, I will show you that land. And when Abram steps out in faith, it becomes, I will give you that land. If he hadn't stepped out, there wouldn't be a give. But because he's stepping out, there is a give. It went from show to give. God is willing to bestow upon us greater blessings if we show our obedience, if we follow in the footsteps that he would have us to take. And as we do that, he blesses us more than at the first. So at the first it's show, at the second it's give. Promise to give the land. By the way, this is not give land to him. This is give land to his descendants. There will actually be a promise future to this verse that will be give land to him as well. Victor Hamilton, he ends up saying in his commentary on Genesis, he says, This promise is not directed at Abram himself, but his progeny. The promise of God cannot be implemented in Abram's lifetime. Promise of land to Abram's descendants precedes the promise of land to Abram himself in chapter 13, verse 17. Another thing to mention as well, this building of the altar. Building of the altar, this is a common activity from the patriarchs, Abram being the, the first and original, let's call him the first and original patriarch, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then his descendants as well. And then you see this, this building of the altar in uh, chapter 12, verse 8. You see it in 13, 18, Genesis 22, 9, Genesis 26, 25, Genesis 33, 20, and Genesis 35, 7. So this is a very common activity to participate in. And then this, I will give land to your descendants. He's already promised that he's going to make his descendants into a great nation. To be a great nation, you need land. So he's filling what they're going to need to experience the promise of God. Sometimes maybe uh, you might feel that God has called you to do something in your life or God has promised something in your life. And you're like, how's this going to work out? If you were called to be a great nation, or you're going to be a great nation, your descendants are going to be a great nation. You might think, how's that going to work out? I don't even have any land. All right. Maybe there's a similar correlation in our life. Maybe there's a call of God on your life and such that you go, how's that going to even be satisfied? I don't even have what I need to accomplish that. Trust God in that. He'll fill it in. He'll give you what you need to fulfill that promise that he's calling you to. Verse 8. Somebody might read it. Verse 8. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Ai, yeah, whatever. There he <laughs> built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Excellent. Good job there. Thank you. So here we have a, a situation where, is he living in Bethel this time? Is he living in AI? No. Where is he living? Somewhere in between. Right. It seems that he's probably staying out of the Canaanite cities. He's probably staying out in the pasture lands. He's got flocks. He's got herds. It's probably better for him out there. So he's not living in AI. He's not living in Bethel. He's living in an area in between, an area that's outside of Bethel. Bethel, by the way, is usually identified with a place called Betin, just over 10 miles north of Jerusalem. And about a mile and a half west of Et-Tel, which is the traditional site of Ai. Regarding this verse, this is the second time that we find that an altar is built. So the first place that he went, he built an altar. The second time he went, he built an altar. When he picks up and leaves, he lives in a tent, right? He takes down the tent and he moves. All right, so when he went to Shechem, he pitched his tent, he built an altar. When he left Shechem, he took down the tent and moved. When he got to this land between Bethel and Ai, he pitches his tent and builds an altar. And when he's done, he's going to take down his tent and move. The altars don't need to be taken down, and you're not going to haul them with you. Altars were typically structures that you would make out of stone, all right? And you take big stones typically, and you'd pull them all together, and you'd make for yourself an altar out of stone, all right? And it was typically a place where you would call upon the name of the Lord. And, and in fact, that's how this verse ends, the call upon the name of the Lord. And so when you move, the altar's still there. You know what I think is neat about this? 
that for his physical needs, those are temporary. Those are transitory. You put them up, you take them down. You put them up, you take them down. All right? The, the spiritual needs stay up. The spiritual needs stay erected. All right? Too often in this life, we hold on to things that we think are permanent, right? A tent's not permanent. We live in, Paul would say, we live in this tent. Our tents are not permanent. All right? A tent is just a passing structure. It's something you live in transitorily. In this life, we hold on to things that we might think or ascribe permanence to that really aren't. You know, you've seen it or you know of a woman who's totally engrossed with her own beauty, right? As if that beauty is permanent. It's not. <laughs> she will find out soon enough that that beauty fades. It's something that's transitory. Or a man in his strength who's consumed with his strength. As if it's permanent. As if they're going to live forever in that condition. They're not. It's transitory. Things of this life, you put them up, you take them down. You need to be putting your investment not in things of this life that are passing away, but in the things of God. When you build up in the things of God, those things are permanent. What did Jesus end up teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 20? He says, Do not sort for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we're investing in permanent things, we're investing in God, those things remain. Those things stay. They don't fade. They don't get weak. They don't lose their beauty. Those are the things that are lasting. The things of this life, they're not lasting. They're transitory. It's like a tent. You put it up one day and it's taken down the next. Genesis chapter 12, verse 9. Somebody might reading that one. And Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Okay, good. So yours is spelled N-E-G-E-V, right? Yes. Okay. Anybody have a different translation? Toward the south. Toward the south. Okay, so New King James Version has toward the south. You probably have NIV. Um, I know Steve Dalby has ESV. Yeah. He has N-E-G-E-B in that passage right there. So Abram set out, continued toward the Negev or the Negev or toward the south. The Negev or the Negev is basically a, a desert land. And, uh, in fact, I've got some pictures here I could pull up right here. These are just pictures that you can find on the Internet to give you just an idea of what it looks like in the Negev. And it's an area that's the southern of what we would call the southern Israel right now or in that time, the southern Canaan, and it, it's just a dry, barren wasteland of sorts. I mean, you would have times where if there was enough rainfall, you would experience a, a great place for your flocks, but if it wasn't a great rainfall, well, then you're left with just kind of a desert, all right? Another picture of the Negev, beautiful place. I mean, I don't mind looking at it, but I wouldn't want to live there. Huh. Abram goes there to live, and it just kind of keeps going like that. So you get an idea what the Negev looks like. It's a hill country. It's an expansive or extensive plain with little rainfall. And then in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, somebody might reading that one. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Excellent. Thank you. So let's, let's recap then, because I'm hearing in these verses, verses 4 through 10, I'm hearing four different places that it ends up staying. Number one is Shechem, Oak of Moray. That's the area between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Number two, Bethel or Ai, or at least the area is on the outskirts of the area between Bethel and Ai. Uh, number three, the Negev or the south or the desert. And number four, Egypt. Would you agree with me when I say that in this passage, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 through 10, when it mentions these places, doesn't it kind of just sound like they're just being mentioned? I mean, there's no real significance attached to any of these, in these verses. There's no extra comment that's given. 
you're just given the names of these places as if they're just insignificant waypoints for Abraham, okay? The interesting thing is, if you look at them, they're actually arranged from north to south. As Abram is passing into the land, it's kind of like he's moving from place to place, going from north to south, and it's probably not a straight line. The route is probably somewhat zigzagish, right? So he's going to end up covering a lot of territory in the land of Canaan. The soles of his feet are going to cover a lot of the places in the land of Canaan as he's moving from north, which is where he entered Canaan, going down to the south and exiting Canaan down to Egypt. All right. When I mention the soles of his feet covering a lot of the distance or a lot of the land, it reminds me of some other passages. Let me read you a few of these that have similar wording. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, Moses, in talking to the people, ends up saying, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. That's kind of cool. From the wilderness of Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he said to you. Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord speaking to Joshua ends up saying, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. As I said to Moses. And then in Joshua 14, verse 9, Joshua reminding the people, he ends up saying, So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord God. All right, so it's kind of neat to think about how Abram is coming on this journey and he's going down through the land. And as he's going through the land, this is the land that his descendants end up saying, God's promising us everywhere the soles of the feet have touched. All right. I think it's neat that he's moving from north to south, covering the land. And what's also interesting is as he's moving, it's kind of like this is a snapshot, or this is a mirror image of what his descendants do later in the opposite direction. Think with me now, beyond Genesis, getting to the end of Genesis, it ends in Egypt. The book of Exodus opens up in Egypt. Between Genesis, the end of Genesis, and the beginning of the book of Exodus, God makes them a great multitude. God is fulfilling the promises that he's given to Abram. And down in Egypt, they become a great multitude. But they need a land. They need a place to stay. And God sends a delivery. He sends Moses, and he leads the people out of Egypt. And when they leave Egypt, they end up wandering in the desert. There's a point where Moses sends the spies into the land to go see the land, to spy it out, see what kind of land it is. They come back 40 days later, they give a report. 12 out of the 12 spies, 2 say, it's, it's good, let's go. And 10 say, oh no, it's scary over there, there's big people over there. And God says, go. And they say, no. And God says, okay then, 40 days you were spying out the land. I'm going to punish you one year for every day you were spying out the land. So 40 years you're going to be punished until this generation that doesn't trust me is going to die in the desert. And they wander through the desert for 40 years as the people are all dying off and all that's left is the young generation who's going in who are not in disbelief. So they leave Egypt. They wander around in the desert. What ends up happening? They get to the Jordan River. Moses ends up dying. Joshua is now in charge. Joshua is about to cross the Jordan River. The first city they're, they're going to is Jericho. Jericho's the first battle, and it's not even a battle. God does the battle for him. Jericho's walls fall flat, and they take Jericho. Oh, but something bad happens. Somebody in the camp has sinned. Somebody in the camp disobeyed God and took up the things that were anointed and given over to God. And he ends up taking those things, and they don't find out about it until they go to Ai. And they go to Ai, and what happens? They're conquered. They move back, and they, they regroup, and they're like, what happened? I thought God was going to give us the land. The second city we go to, we're annihilated. We're, like, beaten down. And they find out that they're sin in the camp and God has to judge their sin and God purifies them 
outside of AI. Not in AI, but in the surrounding area. In the surrounding area, he purifies his people, and they go back into AI, and they take it. And then from there, what happens? They go up to Shechem and the Oak of Moray? How does that fit? Shechem and the Oak of Moray and Mount Ebal and Mer Gerizim? What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. If you remember when we were looking at that one verse that we read earlier, that made the connection between Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, and the terebinth trees of Moray, that was Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 through 30. And in that passage there, let's read it again. Behold, I, this is Moses, set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey, this is about obedience, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you today, and the curse, if you do not obey, disobedience, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known, now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and a curse on Mount Ebal, are they not on the other side of the Jordan, toward the setting of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell on the plain opposite Gilgal, beside the terebinth trees of Moray? Here's what it is it, in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. There's 96 verses. If you haven't read Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, I'm sorry, 94 verses. If you haven't read those passages yet, they can change your life if you let them. It's about obedience versus disobedience. And here's the arrangement. God tells Moses... When you get into the land, you're not going, Moses, but when your people, when they get into the land, here's what you're to do. You're to go up to this area right here. We're tracing it, right? They left Egypt. They wandered in the desert. They were, they were purified outside of Ai. And then how does this fit? This is the place where God said to Moses, those people, those people that you are leading, you're to go to this place between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And you're to take half of the tribes and you're to set them on the slope of Mount Ebal. And you're to take another half and you're to set them on the slope of Mount Gerizim. And Mount Ebal's to the north and Mount Gerizim is to the south. And you've got six tribes over here and six tribes over here. And the reciting of the law is to happen. And the people that are on the slope of Mount Ebal, when the curses are read, the curses that are in Deuteronomy chapter 28, when the curses are read, the people on the slope of Mount Ebal, after each one, they proclaim, yes. Let us be cursed in that way if we do that thing. Curse after curse after curse after curse after curse. And then the ones on the other slope are saying, yes, let it be to us for those of us that obey in this way. Blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. It's a play. It's a participation play where every single person is involved. Everybody's there. You can't say, I didn't get the memo. All right? After this date, you can't say, oh, I didn't know this was okay. Or I didn't know God wanted me to behave that way or to live that way. No, everybody's there. Everybody's participating in this. And you're probably thinking, wait a minute, how do they do this? If there's Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, I mean, that's, put one person on this mountain, one person, you put a bunch of people on this mountain, a bunch of people. It's not like Big Bear Mountain and Saddleback Mountain distance apart. It's about a mile apart. All right? At the extreme, at the peaks, it's about a mile apart. Let me show you another picture here. All right, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. This one is Mount Ebal. There's Mount Ebal right there. And if you look down, you can see the modern day city down there of Nablus. All right? You're looking across at Mount Ebal, and it's a picture from Mount Gerizim, all right? And then you look at another one over here. Here's the opposite view. This is a picture taken looking in the opposite direction. So this is Mount Gerizim from the top of Mount Ebal, all right? And you're probably thinking, how do they accomplish that? That looks like a really far distance. And if you were to look at this more closely, you would say, yeah, that does look pretty far. In 1879, J.W. McGarvey went on a tour of the Holy Land, and he took several people with him. And as they were touring different places, 
they came to this place and they wanted to see, is there some way we could tell how this would have been accomplished? And they ended up going in and it was, it was unmistakable for them. It, this account that's written out, it's many paragraphs long. I don't want to read it to you right now. If you want to read it, it's from Lands of the Bible, published in 1880. It's pages 506 to 508. And they get into this area between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. This is a Google Earth image that I pulled right off the internet yesterday. All right? And on this Google Earth image, you can see Nablus. It's the big old city right there in the middle, right? And to the left, that's Mount Ebal. And to the right of the screen is Mount Gerizim. And you're probably wondering, wait, I don't see it. Let me draw it for you. Mount Ebal, see the shape? Mm -hmm. Mount Gerizim, see the shape? Mm -hmm. You see the shapes? Mm -hmm. It's an amphitheater. It's a natural amphitheater. And the stories abound of people that could hear one another reading to each other across this gap here from the top of one mountain to the top of the other, using that as an amphitheater. And you arrange the people and you put the person in the middle who's proclaiming the words of the law, who's proclaiming the blessings and the curses. And as the person's proclaiming, the Levites are assisting and sending that message up the slopes. And as the curses are being read, the people, the six tribes on Mount Ebal are saying, yes, yes. And as the blessings are being read, the people on Mount Gerizim are like, yes, yes. Let it be to us. They're all participating in this memorable occasion. All right, so when we read it, we see Abram. And what's the application for us? This is the application, right? We see Abram moving from north to south. And he's passing through these rather insignificant mentions. He's passing through these places that don't have any attached words to them. You're the first time reading the Bible and you've never heard of these before. These just seem to be insignificant places that end up becoming significant for his descendants. And isn't that what this has all been about? It's about God making significance of his descendants based on his obedience, based on his faith. And what ends up happening is as they move this way, these take on significance in spades. All right, these places are becoming very significant, culminating in this big one right here. So what does it come down to? What it comes down to is in your life and in mine, maybe there's a journey that we're on. And I'm not talking a geographical journey. I'm not talking a journey over lands. I'm talking about a spiritual journey that we're on. And maybe there are things that we would call rather insignificant in our lives, spiritual waypoints that to our view, it just looks like we're just passing through. But those become spiritually significant to our descendants, to those who would follow in our footsteps. Here's some examples. Maybe you pray in front of your kids. Maybe you pray in front of somebody who's in your sphere of influence and you're thinking to yourself, that's just the way I am. It's just, you know, it's just part of who I am and what I do. But to that person, that can become a spiritually significant place for them that ends up becoming a foundation for them in their spiritual journey. Maybe you read God's word. Maybe you read God's word at your desk or at your work location when the time allows. Maybe you read it in front of your kids. or Maybe you read it in front of some other relatives or somebody else in your sphere of influence. That's something that maybe you just think is just a waypoint that doesn't have a whole lot of significance. But to them, to those following in your footsteps, it becomes hugely significant. When you're living in the Spirit, when you're living a life of faith and a life of obedience, and the fruit of the Spirit shows up in your life, and there's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, you're thinking that just ought to be. And you're right. It just ought to be for a person who's living in the Spirit. But to somebody who's following in your shoes, those relatively insignificant things to you are hugely significant to them. They make an impact in their lives that is going to pay dividends 
right? So Abram's moving through these rather insignificant places that become hugely significant. Abram lived a life characterized by faith and obedience. Faith and obedience. And in doing so, he laid up treasures in heaven and a, a legacy to leave behind spiritually for those who would have followed in his footsteps, as we would as well. When we live a life of obedience, when we live a life of faith, we leave behind a legacy for those who would follow in our footsteps. Woe to us, though, if we live a life of disobedience, if we live a life lacking in faith. Hebrews eleven six says, it is impossible to please God without faith. And regarding disobedience, if we're to live a life of disobedience, we are forfeiting the blessings being shouted from Mount Gerizim. If we live a life of obedience, we can have the blessings being shouted from Mount Gerizim. If we're living in disobedience, we're taking upon ourselves the curses being shouted from the top of Mount Ebal. The life of faith and the life of obedience avoids the curses being shouted from the mountaintop. Very soon after God gave that word to Moses and that he's passed it on to Joshua to give, he's just about to die. And he ends up saying to the people, he says this, he says, I set before you today blessings and curses. I set before you today life and death. There's life for the person who's obedient to God. There's blessings for the person who has faith in God. There's curses for the person who's disobedient. There's death for the person who lacks faith. And he says, I set before you today life and death. Choose life. And just as he admonished his audience, so I would admonish you, that's a choice you have to make today as well. Choose life. You have that choice being presented to you today. Choose life. And in similar vein, Joshua, just before he died, he ends up giving a similar challenge to the people. It's another choice. He says, choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. And then he follows it up with a strong statement. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Choose for yourselves this day who you would serve. And just as Joshua mentioned those words, just as he was sunsetting in his life, I would say the same to you. This, it's the same choice. Choose for yourselves this day who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve the one true God, or are you going to serve the God of your own passions, the God of your own lust, the God of your own aspirations, the God of your own achievement, the God of your own success? Are you going to serve yourself, or are you going to serve the one true God? Choose for yourself this day who you're going to serve. And I'd say, strong statement, I'm going to follow it up for myself personally. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to follow in the footsteps of Abraham, but more so, Lord, to follow in your footsteps. And if we don't know how to do that, Lord, let's heed the words of Paul as he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Help us, Lord. Help us to get in the pattern of being obedient. Help us to be in the pattern of living in faith, not disbelief. Help us, Lord, to be your servants, to be willing to obey when you don't even give us all the details. Help us to step out and in that direction. And as we go along the path that you have designed for us ahead of time, that the blessings would begin to unfold and, and the revelation would be made more and we'd be able to see more clearly and the details would work themselves out as we follow in your steps. Thank you, God. Thank you for your word and the patterns that we see in how you deal with people. And thank you for the graciousness you extend towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. You guys have a great week. Sorry if I took